welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is David Ha, and I'm an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at Stanford Healthcare in Palo Alto, California. I think all our listeners will find today's podcast practically useful as we will be discussing a cornerstone of medicine and infectious diseases, the infamous community-acquired pneumonia, or CAP. However, despite the frequency with which we encounter CAP and the matter-of-factness in which it is taught to trainees, in practice, there still remain a number of controversies around its classification, diagnosis, and management. This podcast episode is sponsored by an unrestricted medical grant from Paratech Pharmaceuticals. However, Paratech played no role in the content of today's discussion. So starting off with Dr. Elizabeth Covington. Dr. Covington is an assistant professor at the Samford University McHorter School of Pharmacy in Birmingham, Alabama. She practices as a clinical pharmacy specialist in general medicine at Jackson Hospital in Montgomery, Alabama. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi, David. Thanks for having me today. Great. And second is Dr. Brandon Dion. Dr. Dion is an assistant clinical professor at the Northeastern University School of Pharmacy in Boston, Massachusetts. He practices as an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, also in Boston. Hello, Brandon. Hi, David. Thanks for having me on. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Jason Pogue. Dr. Pogue is a clinical professor at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and past president of the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists. Hello, Jason. Hey, David. Thanks for having me, and, and hi to Brandon and Elizabeth. I look forward to discussing CAP with you guys. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. All right, to start us off by way of background, in October of 2019, the American Thoracic Society and the Infectious Diseases Society of America published an update to their diagnosis and treatment guidelines for community-acquired pneumonia. I think we'll all agree that this was a highly anticipated publication as the previous version of these guidelines was published a very lengthy 12 years prior in 2007. And among the highlights of the update were recommendations in outpatient CAP to avoid azithromycin monotherapy in areas of high macrolide resistance, and a recommendation for amoxicillin monotherapy in patients without high-risk conditions. Also included were recommendations to avoid targeting gram-negative anaerobes in CAP associated with aspiration, updated recommendations for shorter durations of antibiotic therapy and absence of the previously pervasive healthcare-associated pneumonia, or HCAP. Now, today's discussion is not going to be a detailed review of the guidelines. Rather, we are going to get into the weeds of areas of debate and perhaps where contradicting or weak data exist. Now, before we begin our discussion, I want to address the elephant in the room, and that is COVID-19. I think we all recognize the overlap between COVID-19 and our topic today, as well as the rapidly changing landscape around its epi and its management. However, in the interest of focusing our efforts on traditional CAP, we will not be formally discussing COVID-19 in today's podcast and just mentioning it here and there. All right, so with that, let's, let's start at the beginning with diagnosis. The guidelines have a number of recommendations on diagnosis and infectious workup of suspected CAP, but one thing that was not covered in the older version of the guidelines was procalcitonin. Now, the new CAP guidelines have a couple of comments on procal, 
they officially recommend that a procalcitonin result alone should not stop you from initiating antimicrobial therapy in someone with clinically suspected CAP, much like the HAP-VAP guidelines do. And they also mentioned that procalcitonin has been studied to shorten duration of therapy in CAP, but they make no formal recommendation on its use in this regard. Now, I know that procalcitonin is a can of worms and could be a podcast episode in and of itself. So we're going to try to keep this short and sweet. But Elizabeth, could you start us off on this? What is the role of procalcitonin in the diagnosis and treatment of CAP? Sure. So procalcitonin is something that I've, I've actually done quite a bit of research in, for better or worse. And, and I think these are really two importantly distinct questions. So what is the role of procalcitonin for diagnosis versus what is its role for treatment? And in terms of diagnosis, I just really don't see a huge role for procalcitonin really at all. It has a low sensitivity for diagnosing, And there's so many comorbid conditions that can elevate procalcitonin, even when a patient does not have a bacterial infection. So cancer, congestive heart failure, renal dysfunction, very common comorbid conditions. And we actually did a review, a retrospective review at my institution, looking at patients with varying degrees of renal dysfunction. And we found that non-infected patients with end-stage renal disease had a median procalcitonin level of 1.55, which is well above any of the accepted thresholds for for diagnosing a bacterial infection. So I don't really see a role for it in terms of diagnosis. I completely agree with you, Elizabeth, and and thanks for sharing your data. I think one thing I like to stress when you talk about procalcitonin for diagnosis is that the flip of that is also true, right? And that is data also demonstrate that in certain bacterial pneumonias, notably those caused by atypical pathogens or kind of this newly new understanding of the role of normal respiratory flora in community-acquired pneumonia, the procalcitonin is often low, similar to the values that if you look at those algorithms, they say don't give antibiotics. And so kind of relying on that solely to differentiate bacterial between between bacterial and viral infection could also lead to the inappropriate discontinuation of antibiotics. Yeah, I definitely agree with all of that, Jason. And looking at the flip side and the role of procalcitonin for determining duration of antibiotic therapy, I do think there could be a role for procalcitonin here, but there's some caveats when you look at the literature that we can kind of dive into a little bit. So there's some studies out there that show reduction in antibiotic duration when you're using procalcitonin in patients with CAP. And there was a recent study in 2019 by Marathi and Bennett and colleagues in the Journal of Clinical Infectious Disease. And they showed a reduction in inpatient antibiotic duration and a reduction in discharge antibiotics, which, you know, we always want to see that if possible. And they used a respiratory viral panel to help bolster their findings in conjunction with procal. I do think it's worth noting, though, that if you really do a deep dive in the literature, most of the studies out there that show a reduction in antibiotic duration, the control arm had a very excess duration of antibiotics. So eight days in the Marathi study, 8.7 days in the PROHAS study, so longer than you typically think of treating a patient with CAP. There was a study, the PROACT study by Huang and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine, they found no difference in antibiotic duration when using procalcitonin. And they did have a reasonable duration in the control arm. So 4.3 days, probably more in line with what you'd expect for CAP. And there was no benefit in terms of of difference in antibiotic days. 
So I think if your institution already has good stewardship practices and has a good handle on duration of therapy for CAP, it, it might not even be cost-effective to utilize procalcitonin. If you see excessive durations of antibiotics for CAP, maybe it could be helpful to help curb some of those excess durations of therapy. But I think, you know, I have to close my comments on ProCal by saying we always need to treat the patient and not the lab level. That's my favorite thing to say when talking about procalcitonin. You know, if a patient is clinically deteriorating, I don't really care what their, what their procalcitonin level is at the end of the day. I think Elizabeth makes some great points that the studies of procalcitonin really only showed a benefit when the control group was treated for excessive durations. But I think that those who are in favor of procalcitonin would argue that five days has been the standard of CAP since the previous guidelines, you know, over 12 years ago. And that if there is a tool that helps clinicians feel better about shorter durations, then that's still helpful. Um, there was also a lot of non-adherence to the procalcitonin algorithms in the clinical trials. So if, if people actually listen to the test, it may be more helpful in shortening durations. Another point that is frequently brought up about procalcitonin is the, the low sensitivity of the test, but sensitivities have to be based on a gold standard, and most of the time sputum cultures were used as the reference test, which have problems um, in and of themselves. So there's not really a gold standard to compare to here. And proponents would argue that really procalcitonin is not really a diagnostic test so much as it is a marker of severity and might help identify patients who would be okay with no antibiotics or shorter durations rather than truly distinguishing between bacterial pneumonia and viral pneumonia. Great. Thanks, everyone, for your insights. So let's keep it going with diagnostic considerations and shift to urinary antigen testing. I know lots of folks have opinions on this issue, specifically for pneumococcus and Legionella. So in non-severe inpatient CAP, the guidelines recommend against routine testing, but do recommend it albeit conditionally with low quality evidence in severe CAP or additionally in the case of uh, Legionella in the setting of a local outbreak. So in your opinions, what is the role of pneumococcal and Legionella urinary antigen testing in CAP? Yeah, I'll hop in here and take a stab at this. I actually like these recommendations. I like these updates. I think the recommendation against routine use of both of these antigen tests and non-severe CAP is simply that much like, you know, respiratory or sputum cultures, the results of them are not really going to impact what we do for most patients, right? Pneumococcal urinary antigen tests can be helpful clinically when they are positive, but if they're negative, they lack the sensitivity to say that pneumococcus isn't a player, so you can't make a decision based off of that. Further, even if they're positive, even if they are positive in and of themselves, they do not tell us that an atypical or another pathogen isn't also present. So really, it's understandable that they aren't routinely recommended because again, in and of themselves, they don't give us enough information. However, if you do have a patient who's at high risk for Legionella due to environmental, travel, or other occupational exposures, the guidelines are supportive of Legionella testing, even in non-severe CAP. And again, that makes sense. Think of the patients that we have clinical suspicion. We should certainly be testing to rule it in or rule it out. And, and the test is actually quite sensitive for Legionella, as long as it's the most common serotype that we most commonly see in our patients. 
I think severe cap is really, you know, clinically where Legionella becomes a bigger player. It's a larger concern. And that's why it's routinely recommended that we test it there, right? Because we have therapeutic conversations in patients who have Legionella. Some of us prefer fluoroquinolones in those patients, or we want to make sure that at least a macrolide is on board. And so I think that it makes sense in those situations to make sure that we're testing for it. So I actually think these are pretty reasonable recommendations. So Jason, you mentioned the pneumococcal urinary antigen test and that it isn't necessarily useful in and of itself for uh, a couple of a couple of reasons. Could you expand on that a little bit? I'd be happy to. You know, as, as, as I said, you know, right, knowing pneumococcus is present in the absence of other information really isn't informative as you haven't ruled out co-infection, right? This is a similar issue that we see with the upper respiratory tract panels, right, that give a battery of respiratory viruses. It's great to know that human meningumavirus is present, but we also know from published data that over 50% of the time that a virus is present, there's actual bacterial co-infection there as well. So we get this partial information that does not really inform what we do with regards to antibiotics, right? Knowing one thing doesn't tell us all of the pieces of the puzzle that would really allow us to make informed decisions uh, about a patient's antibiotic coverage. And so I'll, I'll give you an example, David, of, of kind of what I'm talking about there that maybe if we had more of these tests or more information, it would help. So going back to your question or going back to the scenario, let's theoretically say that I have a patient, right? And they have a positive pneumococcal urinary antigen test. We got the Legionella urinary antigen test too. It was also negative. And then we got that respiratory tract panel that we talked about. And remember, in addition to viruses, you also get information about whether or not chlamydia and mycoplasma are, are there. And so let's say that that test is negative as well. So if you put all of these together, those are information that we could actually do something with, right? We'd have pretty good evidence now that atypicals are not present in this patient. We've ruled out all three of concern, and we could probably dump the atypical coverage in this situation. Again, the one thing I would highlight, David, though, is that, again, I think it's a, it's a limitation with all our current tests or the ones that are most commonly used is that even though that gave us more information, right, we now know that there's not an atypical present. We know that pneumococcus is a player polymicrobial infections are still a thing, and this is still incomplete information. You could have other typical organisms around. You could have Ammophilus. You could have Moraxella. You could have Staph. And, and maybe most notably, you could have beta-lactamase-producing strains of these organisms, which, again, would have therapeutic considerations. And so acting solely on pneumococcus being the only thing that's present or what you think is the only thing present, maybe making a decision to go just to something like amoxicillin or a beta-lactam could still get you into issues. And so I guess the point that I would say is that if we had a, a better diagnostics, we could make probably more impactful interventions in these patients, but just one of these here and there aren't really useful and they're, they're of extremely limited utility uh, in making antibiotic decisions for our patients. And I'll piggyback on what, what Jason mentioned. Um, I agree that probably using combinations of all these tools that we've been discussing so far is the most useful scenario. And so looking back at the, the study I mentioned above um, by Maradi and colleagues in clinical infectious disease, the one that looked at ProCal in combination with a respiratory viral panel, I think that's what made that study interesting to me and more effective than some of the other studies that just looked at ProCal in a silo. So they found a reduction in antibiotic duration and less discharge prescribing 
when you had a positive viral panel and a low procalcitonin level, and that probably gave clinicians a little more buy-in with the test. Like Brandon mentioned earlier, adherence with Procal is, is difficult. So when you have multiple diagnostic tests that are all kind of saying the same thing, that gives me more confidence. So I think in a nutshell, it's really hard to use any one of these diagnostic tests by themselves, but maybe we can have success when using them in combo. Perfect. Thanks, everyone. So now I'd like to pivot us into the reason why we are all here, and that is the antimicrobial therapy. So let's start where the guidelines start, and let's start with outpatient. Like I mentioned earlier, one of the notable changes in the CAP guidelines was the recommendation for amoxicillin monotherapy, particularly for outpatients with no comorbidities and no risk factors for MRSA or Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Also included in the recommendations for this group are doxycycline, which is unchanged from previous guidelines, as well as macrolide monotherapy, but with the new caveat that local pneumococcal macrolide resistance rates cannot exceed 25%. And in many areas of the United States, including where I'm practice, and probably for some of you all as well, regional macrolide resistance rates do exceed 25%. So I want to kind of start us off and, and hone in a bit more on this amoxicillin thing. I think certainly one of the obvious standouts is the lack of atypical, as well as the majority of staff uh, activity with amoxicillin monotherapy. And the other practical concern is the three times a day dosing, which can be a bit of a pain for patients to take as compared to some of the other alternatives. So maybe Brandon, you can start us off. What are your thoughts on amoxicillin monotherapy in this patient group? Yeah, thanks, David. I was a little surprised by this recommendation, to be honest. In the EPIC study, mycoplasma pneumoniae was the third most commonly identified bacterial cause of CAP, and it was actually the most common among the young population of 18 to 49-year-olds, which is our group that's most likely to fit into this no comorbidities outpatient category. So we're not covering arguably the most common pathogen in that group. There are also some caveats to the EPIC study. It was patients who were admitted rather than treated outpatient, they used PCR to detect atypical pathogens. So it might've been a little bit more sensitive versus using standard culture to detect typical pathogens. And, you know, they didn't identify a pathogen in almost two thirds of cases. So there are some, you know, some concerns about the epidemiology and reliability of that data. But beyond that, amoxicillin also doesn't have reliable coverage against, you know, the 25 to 50% of Haemophilus influenzae that makes beta-lactamase Morixella cateralis, or most of our MSSA that makes penicillinase, which really is an underappreciated cause of CAP. It was probably the fourth or fifth most common bacterial cause in the EPIC study. And as you mentioned, the one gram TID dosing of amoxicillin can also be a challenge for patients from both an adherence and a tolerability standpoint. It can cause a lot of GI upset. It's also interesting that they specifically recommended the high dose amoxicillin because of the potential for altered penicillin binding proteins like PBP2X and streptococcus pneumoniae, but then they changed their recommendation for the combination therapy with amoxclav and included the 500 125 three times a day, the 875 125 twice daily, in addition to the uh, previously exclusive recommendation of the Augmentin XR 2000 125. So it just doesn't seem consistent at all. 
Yeah, this this is a weird. This amoxicillin rack is pretty weird to me for a number of reasons. I think first, and just just to reiterate what Brandon said, again, let's even ignore the atypical piece of the story. Let's say that in the outpatient setting, we're not concerned about atypicals. Again, that certainly is a debatable thing, but let's let's just say that. MSSA is frequently the third most common bacterial pathogen isolated behind pneumococcus and Haemophilus influenza. Amoxicillin doesn't cover that. This is in addition to the fact, as Brandon said, again, if you talk about beta-lactamase producing strains of Haemophilus influenza or Moraxella, you're not going to have activity there either. This is a particular concern for me with Moraxella, where beta-lactamase production is very common. And so if you kind of go into their rec and, and, the, and the support for it, you know, they, they have published data that they use as support for amoxicillin monotherapy. It's actually driven from inpatient data. But what I think is interesting, and one of the reasons I kind of have some issues with it, is if you look at the date that those data were published, they're all around the turn of the century. They're between 1999 and 2002. And to be honest, it, I, I don't know that that's still appropriate. I don't know that epidemiology is the same today as it was 20 years ago. So I have an issue with that. And then I think Brandon kind of alluded to this. If you kind of dig into that whole recommendation, all of the other options as well, there's no consistency to it, right? If, if you look next at, at macrolides, they, they specifically recommend against macrolides due to macrolide resistance. And, and again, when you look at the data that they use to justify that, again, the relevance of those data are certainly questionable. If you look at the two publications that they used to justify that, it's actually inpatients who had macrolide-resistant pneumococcus and got macrolides, and they were also bacteremic. And, and again, is, I don't know the relevance of that to the outpatient setting. Does that apply to stable outpatients as well? And then again, why is this resistance a concern for macrolides, but it wasn't a concern for amoxicillin? There's no consistency there, so it's kind of hard to walk through that for me. And what's interesting is if you look at the third option there, it, it's doxy, right? And it's kind of funny to me because the resistance issues with doxycycline in something like pneumococcus falls right in the middle of that, right? I mean, 15% resistance is common in strep pneumo for doxycycline. So you have this wide range of things that just aren't being applied consistently. And so what I would say is that, you know, bottom line, I do think that an argument can be made that in outpatients, resistance might not be as big of a concern as it is inpatient, right? Again, you think of the reason that we have them treated outpatients, it's because they have low severity of illness markers. Again, whatever your favorite one is, whether it's CURB, whether it's PSI, they're all in the outpatient stage, right? So their mortality risk is extremely low. You could make the argument that most of these patients are going to get better. Maybe antibiotics speed that up a little bit, but you think that they're going to get better anyway. And so again, maybe perfect bug drug matching isn't as important, but I, I think at the very least, there should be consistency in the recommendations. And as we talked about, there clearly isn't. And personally, I think that if you're going to use antibiotics in these patients, you should target the appropriate bacteria. And so at the very least, I think that we need to be recommending amoxclav over amoxicillin. Yeah, I'll just echo agreement with everything that Brandon and Jason have just said. I think we can't ignore the other potential pathogens out there in MSSA and beta-lactamase producing strains of Moraxella. And I would certainly feel more comfortable with amoxclav over amoxicillin in, in these patients. Thanks, everyone. In the recent past, we've had a number of new agents added to our list of potential therapies for CAP. 
I'm intentionally avoiding the word armamentarium here, even though I just said it, I guess, but namely omatocycline and lefamulin. So the CAP guidelines do mention them. They cite their studies, but do not formally include them in any recommendations, mainly discussing the need for further data. So maybe Elizabeth, you can start us off with this. I'd like to ask you first about your thoughts on the roles of these new therapies for CAP. Sure. So I can start off talking about amatocycline first. And so sorry for for all you out there. I'm going to dig into a little bit of medchem at the beginning. But the structure was kind of neat. It was designed to overcome the traditional mechanisms of tetracycline resistance. So it's protected against efflux and ribosomal modifications that your other tetracyclines would be subject to. So that's kind of neat. It is available as both IV and oral formulations. And in terms of roles in therapy, I think potentially this could be a fluoroquinolone sparing option for CAP. I know many of us are a little bit wary of the adverse drug reactions and FDA warnings for fluoroquinolones that seem to be growing each year and fluoroquinolone resistance too. So maybe, maybe that could be a potential role for amatocycline. One kind of interesting finding, I think, from studies with amatocycline, there were no instances of C. diff in any of the phase three trials. So that's definitely promising. And then there's a study that I was reading up on looking at amatocycline in a gut model. So so not in humans, but Mora and colleagues looked at amatocycline's effect on a gut microbiome and the potential to induce C. diff infection compared with moxie. And in this study, they found that amatocycline didn't induce simulated C. diff infection or toxin production for that matter either. So I really think that begs the question, is that a role for amatocycline? Is, is the role in patients with a history of C. diff or a high risk for C. diff? I think that remains to be seen. I don't think we really have enough data to, to say that at this point in time, but I, I think it's interesting and warrants future research. And so the other new agent um, to talk about would be lefamulin. Another cool agent, this is a first-in-class pleuromutilin antibiotic, and so if you're not familiar with its mechanism, it inhibits protein synthesis, and it works by preventing the binding of tRNA for peptide transfer. And so the, the main studies looking at lefamulin were the LEAP trials. So LEAP1 looked at CAP, and that's really what established its non-inferiority to MOXIE. Again, kind of on... The, the trend of ADRs with lefamulin, there was less diarrhea in LEAP1 with lefamulin versus moxifloxacin. So maybe another agent with less potential to cause diarrhea. And it, it may have a potential role as oral step-down therapy, or maybe an alternative in the setting of a beta-lactam allergy. With lefamulin, I'm actually most excited for something non-CAP related to get a little off topic for a second, but I'm excited to see studies of lefamulin for STIs um, because it's shown in vitro activity against common STI pathogens, even including resistant gonorrhea. So, so no indication for that as of yet, but I'm really interested to see further research in the STI arena. 
That was awesome. Thanks for the overview, Elizabeth. And I, and I love that you brought a little med cab. Our, our audience needs that. They appreciate it. That's what they come here for. This, this is what you come to breakpoints for, right? So, uh, and I, I agree with a lot of the points you bring up. I think I'll be really interested to see how these fare, particularly in the outpatient setting. I think that some of the initial use will likely be there. And, and I'm actually really hopeful for these agents in two potential scenarios. The first one we kind of talked about a lot, right? We discussed that the recommendations for outpatient CAP for those that with, who don't have risk factors are things like amoxicillin, doxycycline, macrolide monotherapy, and they do not necessarily make the most sense from a bug drug susceptibility standpoint. And I think that if we're being fair and we're being honest, one of the reasons that, you know, we allow them or we still recommend them is that one, we don't want to give everybody combination therapy because that's not convenient in the outpatient setting, particularly if you're at low risk for poor outcomes. And then as you kind of alluded to, right, we don't want to give respiratory fluoroquinolones to everyone because we're afraid of some of those collateral damage that comes with that. And so I wonder if perhaps, you know, these novel agents can kind of serve that happy medium there, right? Giving a one-stop shop in these patients, allowing to cover these potential pathogens but not having to give either combination therapy or give a, a fluoroquinolone. And, and then the second thing, and, and kind of just expanding on that a little bit, is for those patients who we do have to recommend a fluoroquinolone, right? Whether that be because of drug allergy, whether that be because they have one of the risk factors for drug resistance, and that and that leads it that leads us there. I think all of us, there are, are some patients that make us uncomfortable. I mean, personally, I think, you know, some of the fluoroquinolone hate in the outpatient patient setting is a little overblown. This is a five-day course of an effective antibiotic. I think that we might be able to back off of that ledge a little bit about being terrified, but there certainly are some patients that we are concerned about, right? Those that are high risk for Clostridium difficile infection, as Elizabeth said, I think omatocycline in particular is an interesting agent in that scenario as we've actually seen it's active, right? It has bactericidal activity against C. diff. So that might be something, or maybe those patients who, due to advanced age, can common use of corticosteroids, are at increased risk for tendinopathy, you know, and, and maybe having these novel options in these patients that can cover even the resistant forms of these pathogens, allow us to more safely give them outpatient therapy. I think it'll be really interesting to see how that develops. And I really hope that we get to see data with some targeted use of these agents in these patient populations. I think another advantage of lefamulin is that it's it's actually kind of targeted towards respiratory pathogens. It doesn't have activity against the enterobacteriales like E. coli and Klebsiella. And that's really what we've always been asking for from drug companies is, you know, treat the bugs that we're trying to treat for this infection. So that may have, you know, less collateral damage than our other cap options, although that's always difficult to study. One disadvantage of lefamulin is that it's twice daily, so maybe not as convenient as once daily options, which may be easier to give in the outpatient setting. And while I think these drugs have their niches, ultimately I agree with Elizabeth that I'm most excited about these agents for their off-label uses outside of CAP. Our group led by Jeff Pearson actually just published a small case series in OFID on the use of amatocycline for non-tuberculous mycobacteria, and an oral option for these patients is very exciting. Thanks everyone. All right, so 
Let's now move on. We were sort of talking about a number of considerations with the new agents around outpatient cap and and we're you know sort of discussing initially amoxicillin monotherapy and other considerations in that regard for cap treatment in the outpatient setting. So let's move on to the inpatient setting. The guidelines really haven't changed much up from 2007 to 2019. Generally speaking, recommending a beta-lactam plus a macrolide or a fluoroquinolone, or in some cases, fluoroquinolone monotherapy. One notable change, however, and, and this was evident uh, as well in the HAPVAP guidelines, is the absence of uh, healthcare-associated pneumonia, or HCAP, despite the fact that every week I do see that still written in notes all over the place. Elizabeth, can you start us off? What what are the real and maybe not so real risk factors for uh, more drug-resistant pathogens in community-acquired pneumonia? Sure. So like you, David, I, I still see the term HCAP near daily in my practice. So definitely important for us to talk about. I think this is a really good question, and I, I don't have a, a clear answer on it, unfortunately. I think what we do know is that the traditional risk factors for HCAP don't really predict multi-drug resistant organisms. Instead, they've really just led to increased use of broad spectrum antibiotics without real clinical benefit. And so that's why the designation ultimately was removed from the guidelines. And and I'm not mad about it. I'm kind of happy to see this change, but instead we need to really be focused on what are the important risk factors for us to be concerned about for our patients. And the biggest one is is prior isolation of a multi-drug resistant organism. Beyond that, the guidelines recommend that we validate our local risk factors, and that's definitely easier said than done. We've been working on this at my institution for the past year, working on validating our risk factors for multidrug resistant organisms. So the way we've been working on this is we've got a list of all respiratory cultures from the past several years, and so we've classified patients either as having a multidrug resistant organism or not having one, and then looking to see which risk factors are significant for multi-drug resistant organisms at our specific institution, because it can definitely vary depending on where you are in the country. I know mine down here in Alabama might be very different from you guys all across the country. And so we, once we do that, we're running a regression analysis, looking to see what are our significant risk factors. So I've been crunching these numbers the past couple of weeks, actually, and Preliminary data for us suggests overall very low prevalence of multidrug resistant pathogens, overall just about 3%. And really the only significant risk factor for multidrug resistance for us is prior hospitalization or receipt of antibiotics in the last 90 days. So for my patients admitted at my institution with CAP, likely don't really need multidrug resistance coverage unless they have a culture history of an MDRO or recent hospitalization. One thing we do, if, if we do end up starting off with empiric MRSA coverage, we've gotten PNT approval for a pharmacy to order the MRSA nasal swab. And I know that's mentioned several times throughout the guidelines as well for our pneumonia patients. And so based on that, we might recommend, it might give further weight to our recommendation on why vancomycin might not be needed for certain patients. Those are cool, cool data, Elizabeth. Thanks for sharing. I actually, you said you don't think because you're in Bama that they're they're representative. I, I think they're very representative. Anything that's published out here in this area suggests extremely infrequent. Do you see MRSA, pseudomonas in these patients? And really, as you kind of alluded to, you know, it's it's that history of the organism that's the big driver. 
you talked about the MRSA nasal swab, and I, I have to be honest, I know I'm going to catch flack for this on this podcast, but you know, I'm not really a huge fan personally of the MRSA nasal swab. Uh, I actually don't f- find it to be very sensitive or specific. If you look at any of the data that are out there, it certainly serves its purpose, but the reason it serves its purpose is just because we treat a lot of people for MRSA that don't have any business being treated for MRSA, right? So if you look at any of the data, the negative predictive value of the test is phenomenal. And that's just because nobody has MRSA pneumonia. An, an equally equivalent test would be Jason going up on the floor and saying he doesn't have MRSA pneumonia. It, w- it would have very similar characteristic. But again, it, it absolutely serves its purpose. And I know that stewardship programs have been really effective with stopping vancomycin because of it. So I will give that caveat there. What I'm actually pretty hopeful for, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, is that, you know, now that we have some of these lower respiratory tract infection rapid diagnostics that can give us a wide variety of bacteria and viruses, I'm actually hopeful that some earlier adopters of those those platforms might be able to give us a better appreciation for these pathogens, their frequency, and their predictors. I, I think a, there are a lot of opportunities here, but as we talked about before, a lot of those you know previously mentioned diagnostic challenges remain in this situation. One thing I actually really like about the guidelines, and again, I feel like we've harped on the guidelines a lot, but but one thing I really do like about these guidelines is basically what they tell you with regards to getting respiratory culture is that if you treat for MRSA or pseudomonas, or you think that it might be there, then get cultures. And that will allow you to both one, validate predictors, but two, you can also de-escalate if you started empiric therapy and those organisms aren't present. And that's really good stewardship. So I actually like their recommendations surrounding when to get respiratory cultures in patients. To piggyback off of the negative predictive value, I think a common theme that we've seen so far is that while the performance characteristics of all of these tests may not be perfect, a lot of times what they're doing is really just providing additional data that help the clinicians feel good doing the right thing. And so because of that, they they are potentially useful. And one of the more interesting approaches that I've seen to this HCAP question was in a study from Japan by uh, Maruyama and colleagues where um, they actually stratified HCAP patients using the old HCAP definitions by severity, which was either ICU admission or the need for mechanical ventilation, and other MDR risk factors, which they specifically used immunosuppression, hospitalization within the past 90 days, poor functional status, or antibiotics within the past six months. So patients who had non-severe HCAP with one or no MDR risk factors, as well as severe patients with no MDR risk factors were treated with CAP regimens. And those with non-severe HCAP with two or more risk factors or severe with any risk factors were treated more like the typical HCAP HAP-VAP regimens. And that approach reduced the use of broad-spectrum antibiotics in patients with HCAP by 50% while uh, achieving similar outcomes to CAP in the lower risk groups. So I really like this idea of using both severity and risk factors to help guide empiric therapy. Uh, Another tool, you know, it's important to use your, your local risk factors, but the DRIP score is another potential option that could be used after local validation to help predict patients who might benefit from broader spectrum empiric therapy. We'll be back after a brief word from our sponsor. This podcast episode was sponsored by an unrestricted medical grant from Paratech Pharmaceuticals. Thanks very much to Paratech for supporting the mission and vision of SIDP and allowing for the development of free public education for our listeners.
This is great. Um, I'm learning so much. I, I could just listen to you, you all talk all day long about CAF and other things. So thank you all. So let's talk about atypical coverage. I think this is something that probably every pharmacy student, every medical student learns about in their didactics, in their infectious diseases course, the need to cover atypical organisms in CAF. And so when I say atypical organisms, I'm talking about things like chlamydophila pneumonia, mycoplasma pneumonia. So what, what is the evidence, though, for the need for atypical coverage? And beyond that, there are a number of hypotheses out there with regard to the benefit of the immunomodulatory effects of macrolides, which are frequently the agents that are providing that atypical coverage in your CAP regimen. And so wonder whether this could be a contributing or confounding factor in the assessment of the need for atypical coverage in CAP. Yeah, I, I don't think that this is a new question, but I think it's become a hot question. In 2012, there was a Cochrane review that compared fluoroquinolone therapy with beta-lactam monotherapy and found no advantage. But importantly, it didn't have enough evidence to say the same thing for beta-lactam and macrolide combinations. So I think the study that really got everyone talking about this was the CAP-START study, which was key in challenging the idea that atypical coverage was necessary. And in that study, they they compared beta-lactam monotherapy to beta-lactam macrolide combination and fluoroquinolone monotherapy. And beta-lactam monotherapy was non-inferior to both of the other two treatment regimens in terms of 90-day mortality. An important caveat to this study, though, is that almost 40% of those in the beta-lactam monotherapy arm still received atypical coverage at some point during their hospitalization, including almost a quarter empirically. And atypical pathogens were only identified in about 2% of cases. So if you have a higher rate of atypical pathogens, the results from the study may not apply to you. Overall, I think the study seems to more support the rational de-escalation to beta-lactam monotherapy when you've either excluded atypical pathogens or they're much less likely, more so than it proves the equivalence of empiric monotherapy. Another study by Guerin and colleagues found that beta-lactam monotherapy was not non-inferior to beta-lactam macrolide combination in clinical stability at day seven, although this did seem to be driven primarily by atypical pathogens, especially Legionella, and higher severity of illness, especially patients with a port score of four. Also looking at that study by Guerin and colleagues, I think they had a really interesting finding that I'd like to point out. So those better outcomes with combination therapy persisted even when they excluded patients who had atypical pathogens. So I think that's really interesting. And I think it goes back to something that, that you posed as a question, David, which was what about the immunomodulatory benefits of macrolides? And so I think that's one hypothesis that the authors proposed for why maybe that, that mortality or, or outcome benefit persisted in patients who, who didn't have atypical pathogens. And there's a lot of data out there on these immunomodulatory benefits in chronic inflammatory conditions like COPD, but we don't really have as much evidence for acute inflammatory situations like CAP. There was a recent study by Sicato and colleagues in the Chess Journal in 2018. I apologize if I just butchered your last name. <laughs> and they found that combination therapy with beta-lactams and macrolides had a mortality benefit but only in patients that had high CRP, so CRP greater than 15 and pneumococcal cap. And so other studies have also shown a similar benefit in these patients demonstrating an inflammatory response, even when you have 
pneumococcal cap or an absence of an atypical pathogen. So I think that's interesting and, and certainly seems to suggest some sort of benefit of macrolides beyond just their proposed atypical coverage. Those are those are great great points, and and I love Brandon that you brought up the the Capstart trial. It's a it's an interesting study, and there's a lot of issues with that trial. But one thing that I no one ever wants to talk about in that study is how well fluoroquinolones do, and I always find that to be interesting because that is not the narrative that anybody wants out of that study. So we don't talk about that. But if you take a look at those data, they're they're pretty encouraging for the quinolones. But but overall, I tend to agree with what both of you said. I I really have no idea. Uh, if I need the combination on floor patients, given the limitations of the data, even those good studies that we talked about. And, and although the data are retrospective, and while I, and, I, and I don't really have a good mechanistic answer to it, I don't know if it's due to expanded coverage or due to the magic effects of the macrolides. I, I think it should be standard of care and critically ill patients to give combination therapy because there is just, I mean, again, limitations aside, the data are really supportive of that. All right. So related to fluoroquinolones, thank you for setting me up there, Jason. This is this is sort of related to the atypical coverage question, but but it's distinct from it. And it kind of brings up the, you know, sort of the recommendations around combination therapy. And and so we see, generally speaking, macrolides are really our workhorse in addition to beta-lactams for combination therapy, but there's also recommendations for fluoroquinolones in their place. And so what are your thoughts on these recommendations and, and the, the data or lack thereof to support them? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And I don't know how others feel on this. I look forward to your take. But, you know, I find the recommendation, the guidelines to give beta-lactam plus fluoroquinolone combination therapy to critically ill patients if you can't give them uh, beta-lactam plus macrolides, both uh, impractical and not evidence-based. We would really only go, uh, at least for me, we would really only go to a respiratory fluoroquinolone in the setting of a beta-lactam allergy. So in that scenario, it's out, right? You can't give a beta-lactam with it. And the enhanced spectrum that you get with the respiratory fluoroquinolones, right? Because one of the reasons you want to add a macrolide, or excuse me, you want to add a beta-lactam as a cover for macrolide-resistant isolates. Since you get that with a respiratory fluoroquinolone, it should really take away the need for combination therapy. So I I really don't know what the benefit of the beta-lactam would be in that situation. So, and and all I can say is that every place that I've practiced, um, if we have a critically ill patient that legit can't get a third generation cephalosporin, and, and as we know, most can, we just give fluoroquinolone monotherapy in that setting. But I'm very interested to hear what others think of that. I totally agree with Jason here. I mean, allergy or other contraindications to azithromycin is pretty uncommon. So it's rare that we'd have a situation where we can use a beta-lactam plus a fluoroquinolone, but we couldn't use a beta-lactam plus a macrolide. And while we're talking about non-evidence-based things, you know, a lot of these patients with severe CAP where this is a a recommendation are going to meet sepsis criteria and probably end up started on Vanco and Cepapim anyway. So this might be an opportunity to (laughs) de-escalate. Yeah, I agree with with Jason and Brandon here. I don't really see a role for the combination of of beta-lactams and fluoroquinolones just simply from a spectrum of activity perspective. Um, To me, it, it just, I don't understand that from a spectrum of activity, I think we could just use fluoroquinolone monotherapy in these types of patients. All right, so I'm gonna move us on to the next question, which I'm very excited uh, to hear your thoughts on. Uh, This whole podcast is essentially uh, waiting for for this question. 
for inpatient cap. In the absence of severe allergies, the guidelines recommend a beta-lactam as backbone to your antibacterial therapy, which is kind of what we've been discussing here and there throughout several of these topics. And I think most of us will you know, practically recognize ceftriaxone as the most commonly used beta-lactam for this purpose. That said, there are some data to suggest that ceftaroline may have some advantages over ceftriaxone. So Jason, I'm going to put you on the spot, and if you could start us off, tell us about some of these data and your thoughts on ceftaroline versus ceftriaxone for CAP. And at least for a moment, let's put you know dollars aside and just talk about the clinical implications. David, what a fun question. Thanks for asking me. This is certainly one of my favorite questions. And, and, and I, I think, like, let's be honest here, right? There's not some data that suggests ceftaroline might have advantages over ceftriaxone, right? There have been three phase three clinical trials, the FOCUS-1 trial, the FOCUS-2 trial, and a randomized controlled trial on Asian patients with CAP, which actually used high-dose ceftriaxone that have shown remarkably similar findings. And guess what? Each one of those findings was superiority of ceftaroline. If you look at those three studies, the primary outcome was clinical cure at test of cure. And ceftaroline was open or was associated with five to 10% improved clinical cure. Two of those three trials, FOCUS-1 and, and the Asian randomized controlled trial, those were both statistically significant findings. And there was actually a publication that came out in JAC in 2016 where they meta-analyzed the three studies and found that receipt of ceftaroline was associated with an odds ratio of 1.65 for clinical cure. So you were, you were 1.65 times more likely to have clinical cure at test of cure with ceftaroline. But, but what I would say is that, you know, a lot of people who will push back on that might say, you know, it's just not an endpoint that you care about, clinical cure, test of cure. And so what I would ask them is, you know, you know, as an inpatient clinician, as someone who treats CAP patients on a daily basis, what would you care about with a superior CAP regimen? I think that the answer to that would be that you'd want patients to get better faster. You'd want them to get out of the hospital, right? That would be a superior antibiotic in that situation. Well, I got news for those people. Ceftaroline does that too. I would encourage you all to look at a publication from Tom Lodis and colleagues. It was an AAC in 2015. And what they did is they took the data from the two focus trials. So again, those were the, the industry-sponsored ones for FDA indications. And what they did is they looked at the impact of ceftaroline versus ceftriaxone on those very you know, clinically focused, clinically relevant outcomes. And ceftaroline administration was associated with a statistically significant improvement in time to symptom improvement, time to clinical stability, and time to being ready for discharge. So let's be very clear that ceftaroline is superior to the standard of care for community-acquired pneumonia. And so that leads us to the situation of, of, right, so what's the problem? You know, why why don't we take this into consideration? And and I know you said to, to ignore this, but let's be honest, it's 98% a cost discussion. But let's even get past the cost, as you kind of suggested. I'm going to listen to your request. And I think the, the good faith counter argument against ceftaroline is usually something along the lines of, we need to save ceftaroline for salvage therapy for MRSA bacteremia. And if we routinely use it for community-acquired pneumonia, we're going to see mass resistance in MRSA, and it's not going to, to be an option. 
I'd probably counter that with kind of the following thought process. And, and I, I do want to start off by saying I, I'm very sympathetic to the we need this agent for MRSA argument and that the gain of giving ceftaroline for CAP might not be enough to warrant routine use. But he, here's the thing, David, it's that if you really believe that we need this drug for MRSA because it's so good, it, 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 then why don't we use it for MRSA? Why do we only give it to MRSA after a patient has failed 35 other drugs and then we started at that point? If, if we believe that we need this drug for MRSA because it's so damn good at treating MRSA, then let's actually use it for MRSA. Let's use it earlier in these patients. I would argue you can't have both sides. You can't say we need this drug for MRSA, but then never give it to anybody that has MRSA. That doesn't make a lot of sense. The second thing I would say is that these patients, right, these CAP patients, by definition, they don't have MRSA, right? They don't, we, we've just ruled it out in these patients. Those who have MRSA are a completely different populations. So, so again, if I give these patients ceftaroline for their community-acquired pneumonia where MRSA isn't present, how am I going to select for mutated MRSA when it's not there by definition? And the last thing that I would say, and, then I, and, I'll, and I'll get off my soapbox here, is that you know there is actually a pharmacodynamic justification for why you'd see this improvement for, with ceftaroline. I think that there is a justification for why this is re real. And if you actually look for pneumococcus, and this holds true for other organisms as well, but you usually see ceftaroline being about eightfold more potent um, from an MIC standpoint with regards to activity against these pathogens. And again, PKPD is not a static yes, no, it's a continuum. And, and if you get a higher time above the MIC, if you get multiples above the MIC, you can absolutely see a more rapid response in this situation. And so again, I think there is a justification that this it makes sense that this would be real. And so I guess to, to kind of close there and end rant, I'm not necessarily advocating for routine ceftaroline use for community-acquired pneumonia. I think there are some logistical considerations that make that challenging, but I would argue that at the very least that this is a topic that warrants discussion and debate, and we should be honest about what we're dealing with in this situation. Jason makes a lot of excellent points here, and it's a very good argument. I think most people that are not convinced by the septarian superiority data have concerns, mainly with the primary endpoint of clinical cure at test of cure, which was kind of a subjective assessment eight to 15 days after the last dose of antibiotics. And that's not typically how we assess CAP treatment. Others had some concerns about how complicated the studies were. There were several different groups like the modified intention to treat, modified intention to treat that was valuable, the microbiological modified intention to treat that was valuable, clinically valuable and microbiologically valuable. But I think that was actually a strength of this study. I mean, each of these groups were clearly defined. There was a reason to look at each of these populations separately. And overall, I think there is biologic plausibility as Jason mentioned, there's better potentially time above MIC, at least more potency and higher affinity for the altered penicillin binding proteins with ceftaroline. The other thing is it was consistently better, you know, across multiple studies, across multiple endpoints, multiple subgroups within the studies. So it was just durable and consistent. And honestly, it is mostly a cost issue. We don't routinely use it primarily due to cost and the concerns for preserving it for MRSA, as Jason mentioned, but I do think it probably does have a role in severe CAP.
That, that's excellent. I was intentionally muting myself here for the audience to avoid you all hearing all of my, my laughing going on in the background. I think it's still unclear, Jason, what you what you think on this issue. So uh, maybe we can clarify that a little bit. More <laughs> I'll be later. more direct in the future. <laughs> awesome. Well, 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 thanks to you both for, for those thoughts and, and Brandon, you as well. So I want to make a pivot now away from anti-infective therapy. I think we've, we've talked about a number uh, of very interesting issues. So thank you all for your thoughts. But I want to talk now about corticosteroids. And I think that uh, we as a medical community have seen our perspective shift in terms of the val- value of corticosteroids in acute respiratory infections. And I, I said we wouldn't talk about this directly, but you know, quite frankly, we've seen this as a result of our changes in management of COVID-19. So that said, I think there has been a consistent debate around the value and, of course, the potential harm that is you, you cannot ignore if routinely used for CAP. And so the 2019 CAP guidelines re- recommend against routinely using corticosteroids for bacterial CAP, uh, regardless of severity, and also against routinely using them for influenza pneumonia outside of patients with uh, refractory septic shock and other separate indications for corticosteroids. So I'm going to turn to you again, Jason, first. Could you tell us about your take on some of the data on this? Yeah, I'm happy to, David. And I'm impressed that you came back to me after that. So I'm going to consider that to be a win for for me. But I will tell you, I'm glad you did because steroids and severe cap has always been an interesting topic to me because again, it's as you kind of alluded to earlier, right, this is a cookie cutter disease state that isn't so cookie cutter. And I think steroids is always one of those questions. And and I do think that our thought process is changed now after our experience with COVID-19. And I think that I will be the first to admit that there are significant limitations to the data that have been out there, but I've always been encouraged by the evidence. There's a lot of issues trying to put all of those data together. If you look, the populations that are included in the studies are different. Their definitions of severe or non-severe are different. The sample size is often small. The endpoints are different in all of the studies. But even going back into the 2000s, you know, there were some small studies out there that suggested the benefit of corticosteroids in patients with severe CAP. I, I think one of the reasons that people kind of dismissed it initially is just because the effect was too big to believe. We had these very small studies that were showing these massive reductions in, in mortality or these really bad outcomes. And, and I think that in 2015, you know, we got a little bit better data, but it, it's even further muddied the waters in this situation. There were two RCTs that were published in 2015. One was in JAMA, one was in Lancet. And again, what, what's interesting with these studies, again, they have some of the same limitations. Notably, the one in JAMA has a very small sample size. Their patient populations they include are different. Their endpoints are different. But what was interesting is that neither of these studies showed a mortality benefit um, with corticosteroid use in patients with CAP, but they also did seem to show some benefits. Again, they had different outcomes. One was the incidence of late complications. One was time to clinical stability. And there was a hint of, of a benefit in, prog- in stopping progression of illness in the study that was in Lancet by Bloom and colleagues. But Again, so it's really hard to to kind of take all of those data together because of all of those differences between the data set. But where I kind of come out of that at is that, you know, 
even though the outcomes that are benefited are not consistent, there's consistently some degree of benefit in these patients. And I think to your point, David, encouragingly, none of them have shown a significant harm, right? And, and so I've always been really encouraged by that. And I think the guideline recommendation is reasonable because of that. And one thing that those of us who are interested in this topic, we've been waiting for a long time for a VA study um, that was a randomized controlled trial looking at steroids versus placebo in patients with severe CAP. Again, this had the, the guideline definition of severe CAP using ATSI criteria, either one major or three minor. They looked at a hard endpoint of 60-day mortality in the patient population. And this is a study that started eight years ago. It finished four years ago. And we always were, wait, where, why isn't this updated? And it's interesting, as I was preparing for this pod, I, I took a look at clinicaltrials.gov, and lo and behold, NCT 01283009 was results presented on October 8th. Um, so that was the good news. Uh, the bad news is, is that the 60-day mortality endpoint is really all they showed was the top-line results, and there was no improvement in 60-day mortality. Again, that's not the be-all, end-all of a story, but certainly discouraging. I think we'll be interested to see more of those data as they come out. But, but I'll tell you, David, if, if, if COVID taught me anything, as I look at all of these steroids data where they're all over the board, small numbers are hampering our ability to really make good decisions based off of it. If we ever needed a recovery type study, boy, cap and steroids, which interestingly enough is where we got COVID and steroids, right? Cap and steroids makes a lot of sense. So I really would love to see that at some point in the future, but I'd be interested to hear what other people think too. Yeah. You know, with the caveat of the heterogeneity between the studies and the fact that garbage in is still garbage out, a couple of major meta-analyses of steroids for pneumonia did show a mortality benefit for patients with severe pneumonia. And, you know, this makes sense when we think about steroid use in septic patients and a faster time to clinical stability in patients with non-severe pneumonia. So I, there does seem to be a benefit to steroids overall. And as Jason mentioned, you know, the most common adverse effects tended to be dysglycemia, so maybe increased insulin use, but overall, per, not a lot of harm from using steroids. So I, I do tend to think overall the benefits typically outweigh the risks, but I think one of the major questions that we need to resolve is what's the optimal agent? Some of the steroids have different mineralocorticoid versus glucocorticoid properties. Does that matter? What's the right dose? What's the right duration? So I'm really hopeful that we can answer these questions in the future and that this could become a routine part of CAP care. Awesome. Thank you both. I really like that comment about the the cookie cutter comment about how CAP is a cookie cutter disease or it seems to be a cookie cutter disease state, but it really isn't. And there's a lot of there's a lot of subtlety here and a lot of patient specificity when it comes to an, an organism specificity as well when it comes to the optimal management and as well diagnosis of these patients. So I really wanna thank you all for all of your insights there. There was a lot of richness in terms of the data that we went through and a lot of the uh, sometimes controversial topics that we had talked about, but making for some very, very interesting content. So I just wanted to thank all three of you, Brandon, Elizabeth, Jason, uh, for all of your insights today on behalf of SIDP and the listeners of Breakpoints. Yeah, thanks, David. And thanks to Jason and Elizabeth for a great discussion. I actually learned a lot from this. So this was awesome.
I did as well. Thank you so much for, for having us today. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to thank you, David. This was, this was fun. I enjoyed it. Letting me rant periodically is always appreciated. I, I thank <laughs> Brandon and Elizabeth. I agree. I learned a lot from them, and this was really beneficial. And, and I'd also like to thank SIDP for the opportunity to be on the Breakpoints podcast. Thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. This podcast episode was sponsored by an unrestricted medical grant from Heritech Pharmaceuticals. Our thanks to Paratech for their support to bring you this content today. I've been your host, David Ha, and our featured speakers have been Dr. Elizabeth Covington, Dr. Brandon Dion, and Dr. Jason Pogue. Our podcast production team also includes Jerlene Shin, Joanne Huang, Kelly Aaronsman, Rachel Britt, Zara Kasamali Escobar, Julie Justo, Aaron McCurry, Kelly Cole, and Anna Zhao. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP to achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.